Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey again, everybody. Great to have you with us. Mark and Mike with you as always. You know, Mark, our guest today is truly, I think, one of the great characters of the game. Immensely talented as a pitcher, also as a broadcaster. And it still shocks me to this day that even with 287 wins, it took until his last year of eligibility in 2011 before the writers finally voted this guy into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, no brainer for me that a Hall of Famer with those type of numbers uh, wouldn't go in earlier. But the beauty of Burt Blylevin, Mike, to me, is the balance. And what I mean about that is on the mound, he had the intensity of a bulldog on the mound and going out there and doing everything about complete games, so many different shutouts, those stats that really are eye-popping. But he had good balance, and he was known for having a lot of fun within the clubhouse and with his teammates. And I can't wait to hear his stories. Well, Burt, man, heck of a career. A lot of milestones 287 wins, 60 shutouts, couple of World Series championships, two All-Star games, fifth most strikeouts in baseball history, a no-hitter, and of course your Hall of Fame induction in 2011. But we find it interesting that you don't consider any of those to be your signature moment, but rather it was a single performance for you at the end of the 1979 season. Why is that? Well, you know, I came up when I was 19 years old. I had a chance to go to postseason in 1970 uh, against the Baltimore Orioles, 69 and 70. The Orioles just uh, had a great ball club. I was supposed to start game three in that series, and the Orioles beat us uh, the first two ball games in Baltimore. And on the plane ride going from Minneapolis, Minnesota, to Baltimore, Bill Rigney was our manager, and he came back and he informed me that he was going to start Jim Cott rather than myself. And I was really looking forward to starting game three. I ended up coming in relief, pitched a couple shutout innings. But uh, I think my the one that I remember the most uh, that, that I think you play the game for as a team game was 1979 when I was with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, we defeated the Reds the first two games. I got a chance to start game three uh, is a five game series. So if we clinch, you know, we go to the world series and had an opportunity to pitch that ball game, nine innings, we won seven to one. And uh, that, that to me was a moment that, uh, you know, as a player, you, you thrive for to get to the world series. And that was my first opportunity. And I felt, uh, you know, winning that game and helping uh, the pirates get to that promised land as Willie Starger would say. Uh, and then we ended up uh, defeating uh, Baltimore uh, that year in seven games, thanks to Willie Stargell and uh, everybody else that was on that ball club. Bert, you think about that team, and, and I think baseball fans remember the We Are Family Pirates. Uh, what was that like? Uh, it, just the, the whole trend and, and how it took, it, uh, took baseball by storm. Well, you know, I'd already played eight, ten years prior to that, and uh, that clubhouse – led by Chuck Tanner, led by Dave Parker, led by Willie Stargell, John Milner. We had a lot of characters on that ball club. It was just a fun ball club. We were expected to win. That was a team that we actually went in and thinking, you know, if, if we could, uh, you know, Kent Picovey was our closer. We had a great starting staff. We had great defense with uh, Bill Matlock at third. Uh, you know, Tim Foley at short, Phil Garner, Willie Stargell, Dave Parker, Omar Marino, Bill Robinson. 
I mean, that's just a, the, you know, we had guys like Mike Eastler, Lee Lacey off the bench, uh, Manny Sanguian, Steve Nicosia, trying to name all the offensive players, but we had a great defense. And I think that helped the pitching staff. You know, Bert, when we examine the 22 wonderful years you pitched in the big leagues, uh, None of it happens without the magic of 1970 for you, your true major league beginning. Uh, just 19 years old, as you mentioned. Take us back to that moment when you found out you were getting the call to the big leagues, who you told, who told you, and your reaction. Well, you know, it happened so quick because I signed out of high school in 1969. I went to rookie ball, then single A. I, got, I played instructional ball. In 1969. So my first year, we ended up winning it all. I beat Ed Farmer one to nothing in the championship game. Uh, and that in that got me to spring training the next year. I was still only 18 years old, got to rub shoulders with Harmon Killebrew and Rod Carew and on the pitching staff, uh, Jim Perry, Jim Cott, and you know, Dave Boswell, Louis Tion. They were the four starters back then. So I was just an invitee. I had an opportunity to go and uh, you know, learn and watch and my pitching coaches, Marv Grissom, and just pick their brains, uh, watch how they ran, watch how they went about their business. Uh, I got sent down to AAA only because the manager, Ralph Rowe, was also the manager in Instruction League, and I pitched well there, 8-0 uh, that, that previous winter. So I was in AAA. I made five, six starts, I think, something like that. And I just pitched a ball game where against Oakland's AAA club, I, we, I won one to nothing in 10 innings. I remember I struck out 17. And then right around the end of May, Dave Boswell and Lou Tiot uh, both got hurt. And uh, uh, Eric Soderholm and I were in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The team was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But Eric Soderholm and I went to a movie. And when I got back... From the movie, we walked into the lobby, and Bob Gebhardt, a great guy that's been in baseball forever, but uh, Gebby was in the lobby. He was a pitcher for us. He was our closer at the time in 1970 with the Evansville Triplets. Uh, he said, Ralph Rowe wants to see you, the manager. I thought, well, you know, what the heck did I do? We just came back from a movie. Am I in trouble? And uh, so I went up to his room, knocked on his door. He asked me to come in, and he showed me a telegram that uh, basically said, uh, you know, congratulations, uh, uh, you're going to the big leagues, uh, meet the team in Boston, uh, where the Twins were playing the Boston Red Sox. So I caught a, a night flight out that night and uh, joined the team in Boston. I got in about two o'clock and I tell the story that on this telegram, it always said, report to Mr. Rigney immediately in Boston. So by the time I got to the hotel, it's two, two thirty. I kept looking at this telegram. Of course, I'm shaken. I already talked to my mom and dad. Those are the ones that I, I called first and really the only calls I made. But uh, looking at this telegram, and uh, I went to the counter, didn't check in. I said, uh, can you please give me Mr. Rigney's room? And they did. Uh, so I went up to his room and about 2.30, I banged on his door. He finally woke up, I think, and came to the door and he said, uh, you know, looked me up and down, and he said, what are you, what are you doing here? And I said, shoulder him a telegram, report to you immediately. And, you know, back then, my, Mark, I know you you guys played, there's always a curfew. You know, after a ball game, there's a curfew that uh, you have to stay, you have to be in your room a couple hours after the ball game, no matter what time it ended. So, well, Mr. Rigney welcomed me to the big leagues. He said, did you check in yet? I said, no, sir. Uh, 
you know, uh, showed him the telegram again, report to him immediately. So he said, hold on a second. He went back and he got a rooming list. And he said, uh, what I want you to do, that he came up and said hello to me and welcome to the big leagues. I want you to go to all your teammates and tell them that you're here. So at 2.30, I've got this rooming list. I bang on doors. And he said, before you go check in, he said, come back and report to me. Um, so I did. And I said, uh, you know, he said, well, did you say hello to everybody? I, I said, Skip, I tried. I said, but nobody was in yet. So <laughs> he made a lot of money that night. Uh, and you made no friends. He made friends after that. But no, just a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, my first major league start was about five days later against the Washington Senators. And, of course, uh, you know, getting to watch Jim Perry and Jim Cott prepare for a ball game. Uh, that's what I tried to do. I came to the ballpark uh, before the bus got there and sitting in front of my locker. And I knew that uh, Jim Perry and Jim Cott had gone in to see old Doc Lentz, our trainer, put a little rubbing uh, alcohol or baby oil on your arm before you go out. I did the same thing. I, I hurry up, hurried up, got dressed about a half hour before the game, uh, got dressed and Doc rubbed some stuff on my arm. I started going out the tunnel, out to the dugout, and Mr. Rigdon was filling out the lineup card, and he looked me up and down, and he said, uh, uh, you nervous? I said, well, yes, sir. I said, uh, yeah, I'm a little nervous. I said, why do you ask? I'm going to go warm up. He said, uh, listen, son, he said, I don't know how you did it in the minor leagues. I don't know how you did it in high school. But up here, we try to wear our athletic supporter on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go back in and change. And uh, about a half hour later, I found myself standing uh, on a major league mound in uh, Washington, D.C. against the Washington Senators. And Ted Williams was the manager. Uh, Frank Howard was in a lineup that my dad idolized growing up being a Dodger fan. And... Uh, the first guy I ever faced had a home run off me, Lee May. And he stood about six foot two, six foot three. And Frank Howard, of course, at that time was a mammoth of a man. He stood about six, seven, six, eight. And as Lee May rounded home third base, I thought, geez, if he hit one 400 feet, how far is Frank Howard going to hit one? But uh, we ended up winning two to one. That's the only run I gave up. Uh, pitched seven innings. Ron Paranowski uh, pitched the final two innings and got that save for me. Uh, so, of course, after the ballgame, we didn't have cell phones like they have today or, or Zoom or all this stuff. Uh, you know, I had to wait till I get back to the hotel room to call my mom and dad. And uh, I did. And, you know, of course, uh, they already had heard that I won my first major league game. So I'm talking to my mother for a while and her Dutch accent. And my uh, pops finally got on the phone and his Dutch accent. You know, we talked a little bit. And finally, he said, well, son, how did Frank Howard do against you? Because he idolized Frank Howard. I said, Dad, 0 for 3, and I struck him out once. Dad, he hung up on me. He wanted Frank Howard to take me deep. <laughs> but a lot of good memories. I played with a lot of great players. And, uh, and you both know to wear a, uh, a uniform, professional uniform, uh, is a dream come true. Bert, I love that because it is our influences that we have as uh, veteran guys, guys that take you under your wing 
uh, their wings, excuse me, and know how to mold you into the guy you are. You said how important your dad was, but now you have the ability to fast forward and say, who's going to get me to that next level? Can you name a, a few in, in uh, particular stories that really resonate with you? Well, I think, you know, my pops was the one that, uh, you know, when we came from Holland to Canada and to the United States, uh, you know, they didn't make a lot of money. There was uh, seven children and, and then my mom and dad. And we had a, I remember when we moved from Paramount to Garden Grove, California, it was a three bedroom house with one bathroom and I had four sisters. So I didn't take a lot of baths or showers, uh, which I still don't today, but, uh, it just, uh, you know, growing up that way, my dad was a bumper straightener when he came to the United States, and he straightened my head. I still got a lot of knots right here that he <laughs> did on top of my head, but uh, I wanted to play catch. I wanted to play baseball, and because the friends that I hung out with when we moved to Garden Grove, I was about in third grade. They played Little League, so I started playing catch with my pops when he got home. Uh, he built me a mound in the backyard when I started throwing a little bit harder between our horseshoe pits. We had horseshoe pits in the back. We loved to throw horseshoes. And, uh, you know, I think he was my number one hero as far as growing up. And then when I signed, I think uh, my first pitching coach, Marv Grissom, was a guy that I really looked up to because – I was 18 years old when I signed and I threw across my body. I mean, real bad. I, I, where, where I'm a right-handed pitcher. So my left leg, when I landed was almost toward that third base line rather than toward even a right-handed hitter. I was really, I was almost like a javelin thrower uh, throws. He la I landed on my heel, threw across my body and Marv Grissom between starts, he brought a folding chair out. And he laid it down exactly where my left foot landed. And I looked at this folding chair. What he wanted me to do was utilize my foundation, the lower part of my body, so my legs would help my arm whip that ball toward home plate. And I looked at this chair, and I said, Mr. Grissom, I said, what if I land on that chair? He looked me right in the eye, and he said, well, then you'll break your damn neck, won't you? <laughs> That's old school. But what he got me to do was open up and drive and point my foot more toward the catcher rather than over toward the third baseline. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, I started to bend my back a little bit better. And I had, I think, better control uh, just by just that little exercise that Marv Grissom did for me. You know, Bert, you'd mentioned uh, the influence of your father and probably your entire family. But what did it feel like to not have... Uh, your dad and your family there for your big league debut. And, and in fact, it took a little while before they finally saw you pitch at that level, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, you kind of want your parents there with you. You know, today, broadcasting for the Twins, anytime somebody comes up, you know, their parents and family seem to always be at that stadium. And, uh, you know, back then, we didn't make a lot of money. I mean, minimum was 10500 I didn't come up till June. So, you know, I, I couldn't afford to pay my parents and they couldn't afford to fly to Washington to watch me pitch. Uh, first time that they saw me pitch was actually my, I think my seventh or eighth major league start when we played the angels at Anaheim. Uh, pretty excited to, to be in a big league uniform and, and pitch in front of uh, my mom and dad at the time. I, my brothers and sisters were there. So it was a pretty exciting moment. I ended up getting a win that ball game. Uh, 
Uh, Mike, you and I looked that up. I had to look it up, but uh, <laughs> I ended up pitching six innings uh, that ball game. We ended up getting a win. Bert, I think there's uh, times where people play in the big leagues. They get there and they want to feel like they belong. Do you remember that moment when you felt like, you know what? I can do this. Even at an early age, I can do this and I can pitch at this level. I never thought that way, Mark. You know what? I always took every game like it was going to be my last game. I guess I looked at it that way. Uh, All the way through my career, it was always, you know, I wanted to do the best I could that day, look myself in the mirror after a ball game and say, did I give it all I got? Uh, You're going to lose close ball games. You're going to win big ball games. But it's the consistency that I was looking for throughout my career to go out. and, And back then, you know, again, I guess, Jim Perry and Jim Cott, I got to give them a lot of credit because they kind of took me in as a younger brother, you know, and I used to go eat with them. And of course, Mark, you remember you, when you come up here, rookie, you go out with a veteran, you don't pay, mm-hmm. they pay. Yep. That's awesome. It is awesome. I'd, I'd hang out in the lobby, just waiting for a veteran to come through. Like, you want to go eat? <laughs> Made a lot of money that way. But, uh, you know, those guys kind of took me under their wing and, and to think that I belong there, I don't think... I ever thought I, I just wanted to be there, you know, and, and through my talent and hard work and my Dutch stubbornness, uh, I knew I could succeed as long as I had that opportunity. You know, Bert, um, I have a, a birdcage lined with minor league cards because that's as far as I could go. You, <laughs> yeah, guys, you signed with the Twins. Yes, I did. And, yes, uh, you did. And, and a lot of people got fired because of that. <laughs> uh, but I always wanted to had that opportunity to play in the big leagues. You guys both did. And you get that big league card, the baseball card that says basically you've arrived. That is a true and metaphorical calling card for you. What do you remember about that rookie card that you got and how it made you feel? Well, of course, you know, I had a paper out when I was growing up. So, you know, baseball cards kind of went in our spokes, you know, to make some noise as you're going down the street. But a funny story about that baseball card, I collected baseball cards and a lot of my friends did. That go back to my first guy I faced, Lee May, with the Washington Senators. I gave up that home run, and he's around in third base. Yes, I thought of Frank Howard, but I also saw my manager, Bill Rigney, come out of the dugout. <laughs> and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, my bubblegum card is going to have my picture in front, and then on the back, it's going to have an ERA of infinity because I thought he was going to take me out. And the man was a genius, Mr. Rigney, because he came out, patted me on the back, and he said, son, that's not the last home run you'll give up. Now go go with the catcher and do the best you can. And George (laughs) Metterwall was my catcher. And I said, well, he called that fastball, not me. (laughs) No, but, uh, you know, George George was a great catcher. And, you know, and Bill Rigney was right because I only gave up 429 home runs after that. Hey, all that means is you played a long time in the big leagues. That's not to be ashamed of. I made a lot of fans friendly, I think, because, you know, as my kids got older, when I pitched in Minnesota at, at the Kingdome or uh, the Metrodome, uh, you know, I gave up 50 home runs one year. I mean, it got so bad that when my kids got to the ballpark, they brought their gloves with them and went out and sat in the left field, you know. And if a left-handed hitter came up, I'd have to wait a little bit to allow them to get over to right field. But, uh, no, we had a lot of fun with it. Bert, interesting that you bring up gloves for the fans. But I think for our listeners, it's interesting, uh, the choice of gloves. I think people don't realize there are some little things that you like to 
have uh, for attributes of why you chose a glove. Is there anything in particular you remember uh, why you chose a glove that you did and what glove did you use? Well, as you can see behind me, uh, right here, are our gloves. My wife, uh, Gail, put uh, from the beginning toward the end of my career, different Rawlings gloves that I use. I always use Rawlings. Uh, I'm trying to think who the first one. I know Don McMahon worked for Rawlings, and now my good friend Jim Hughes. Jim Hughes is uh, one of the best Hugo in the Hugo Gogo works for, for Rawlings, and Hugo's about ready to retire, but we were roommates together back in 1969. We met on the plane uh, going to uh, from Southern California to Melbourne, Florida, our rookie season. We roomed together in a barracks uh, in that time in, in Melbourne, uh, 1969. We got off the plane. We asked where the hotel was, and we went into an army barracks. We went on the second floor. There was a window, thank goodness, and there was a rope there. And we thought, you know, what's a rope for? Well, they said, in case a place burns down, that's your way out. Well, about two or three in the morning, we also found that rope very handy. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, you know, we, we, we just, uh, it's, it's moments you'll never forget, I think, uh, in the minor leagues way back in 69 and 70. Uh, they weren't like they are today. Uh, it was completely different. And, and the four fields at Melbourne, uh, my high school fields were better than them. Those are the worst by the airport oh, there. Yes. For yes. folks, yeah, I, that's where I went to that. spring training there. Yeah, it was, a, it was unbelievable. And, and for folks who are listening, uh, who are our age and have been there, uh, you know what we're talking about. For the rest of you, though, anybody who'd come out of any type of high school program or certainly college, you, were, you thought you went down. <laughs> did I sign or did I get demoted? <laughs> yeah. It was unreal. You know, Bert, you'd mentioned uh, not making too much money when you first got to the big leagues and uh, and the era in which it was uh, your first major league contract. And, and, and I, I think of it because I know the personality type you are. Uh, I, I would love to know how that all went down, given the fact that you were dealing with the Minnesota Twins. Well, Calvin, Calvin Griffith was the owner of the Twins up until 1984 when the Polad bottom but he brought the Minnesota Twins to Minnesota in 1961 and uh, after my rookie year I was rookie pitcher of the year by Sporting News uh, Thurman Munson was the American League rookie pitcher of the year in 1970 well they send you a contract in December and my contract read minimum was at that 1970 minimum was 10,500 and Mr. Griffith uh, sent me a contract for 11,000 only because minimum had gone up to 11,000. So he didn't really give me a raise. It was kind of automatic. So um, we didn't have agents back then, like Barry Axelrod. We, uh, you know, we had guys, I had to rely on my pops, you know? Mm -hmm. So I went to my dad and he made about seven, $8,000 a year. He said, oh gosh, darn it. You send that contract back. I said, well, dad, what should I ask for? He said, you asked for 15,000. You had a good year. I said, okay. So I ended up going on a winter caravan, sent the contract back in January. Uh, Jan Bonneville, uh, Calvin Griffith's secretary at the time, gave me a call and said, Calvin would like to meet with you. And I was already up there. So set up a meeting a certain time. And I think it was like one o'clock. Uh, I sat in his lobby for about an hour. I know nobody was in his room. He just wanted me to sit there and just continue to be nervous because I'm going to ask for a raise. Uh, finally, he came to the door. He 
shook my hand, come on in the office. And he said, uh, you know, come on, sit down. And I sat down on a couch that had no springs. My butt was basically on the ground looking up at Mr. Griffith in his high desk, sitting up high. And finally, one thing got to another. And he said, you know, you set your contract back. Why? Well, I feel, you know, as rookie of the pitcher of the year, I felt, you know, I feel that I should get a raise. And he said, what do you think? I, I, I So talking to my dad, I think I should get 15000 I thought his head was going to explode because <laughs> he brings up that I didn't come up till June. I only made like $7,500. You're going to double your salary. I don't even give Harmon Killebrew that type of raise, you know. You want a 100% raise? So I felt about that big now, you know. So I sat back even lower. I'm almost underneath the couch now. And I said, what do you think's fair? He said, I'll give you a $1,000 raise. Then he said, you know what? I'll give you a $2,000 bonus if you win 15 or more games. So I said, great. He said, I can't put it in a contract, so I'll write it on a piece of paper, which he did, a little piece of paper. And uh, I won 16 games my first full year. So I called Jan Bonneville up after the season, and I said, I have a $2,000 bonus coming. Uh, can you ask Calvin uh, if I could get it? So she calls back the next day and says, Calvin doesn't remember signing anything like that. <laughs> Thank goodness I kept this piece of paper with my $11,000 or $12,000 uh, uh, contract that I had. And I had to make a copy, of course, bring it in. And I got my $2,000 bonus, which was good money back then. Mm -hmm. And you think about those signature moments, but also the motivation factors that come into play. Uh, Bert, uh, when someone says Bert Blylevin, I think fans of the game remember that signature pitch, the curveball. But you can't just go with the curveball. You have to have fastball command. You have to have the ability to set those things up. But yeah. let's dive into that signature pitch, if you don't, if you don't mind. What made you, or what made you feel like this was the pitch that was going to be my money maker moving forward to pump in all those strikeouts? I see. Everybody talks, Mark, about my curveball. My fastball set up everything. A couple things. Uh, when I was a kid, I had a block wall between our houses, of maybe about 20 feet away, and I would put a strike zone down, and I had a tennis ball, baseball, whatever I had, I would pepper that strike zone. And I'd imagine play, my, play the game of baseball just myself against the wall. Uh, and I, I wanted to learn a breaking ball. And what happened was Sandy Koufax had an interview with Ben Scully. And Sandy told, Mr. Koufax told Ben Scully that if he ever had a son, he would have let us throw a curveball till he was about 14 years old, let his arm develop. So what happened was, you know, when uh, I wanted to start throwing a breaking ball, my dad said no. And I didn't. I didn't start throwing a curveball till I was about 13 years old. And my dad actually helped me with, because we worked on what we called back then a drop straight over mm -hmm. the top. And I'd listen to Ben Scully on the air radio describe Sandy Colfax's drop. And Mark, I don't know if you remember back then, the mounds back then in the 60s were like pyramids. They didn't yeah. have the 10-inch mound like they have today. And talking to Mr. Colfax and Mr. Sutton, uh, having the opportunity to talk to them at the Hall of Fame, they loved that high mount because they wanted the steepness. Mm -hmm. And another thing that really helped me is my rookie season, Marv Grissom introduced me to Don Drysdale. 
again, growing up in Southern California, being a Colfax and Drysdale fan, I got to sit and listen for about 15, 20 minutes in the Angels dugout, talking to Don Drysdale, listening to him talk about pitching, about the importance of the fastball, about, you know, if a hitter shows you that he's leaning in, get back in there again. Don't be afraid to repeat that fastball inside. My curveball was my out pitch if I needed a strikeout, but my fastball set up my my control. And one thing I learned early, Ted Williams has a hitting chart. Anybody that's listening, go to Ted Williams' hitting chart, and he has a baseball in all the parts of the strike zone. And down and away, Ted being a left-handed hitter, he has, if every pitch in his career he feels in this was in this spot, this little box down there, down and away, he would have hit 230, 240, 250. You're talking about a 330 career hitter basically mm-hmm. telling you you have to control down and away to a left-hander or a right-hander. And that's one thing I give my Dutch pitchers every time I'm the pitching coach for the WBC. Mm-hmm. First thing they have in their locker is Ted Williams' hitting chart. And, uh, you know, it's something that uh, I think I, I made one up here, but it's it's just a hitting chart with the – if he if the, every ball was down the middle, he said he would have hit 440, you know. Heard it. If you if you look at that, and, and Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax had a huge influence on you, and, and you listen to those guys, it, it molds you. Oh, did yeah. you ever did you ever talk to hitters? I, I know you mentioned the Ted Williams hitting chart. Do you ever talk to hitters and uh, just adjusting? How did you how did you take that? Uh, Rod Carew, great hitter, Hall of Famer. Tony Oliva, two guys that uh, you know I came up with. I talked to him hitting on the bench. Uh, Rod Carew told me one time there was a pitcher out there. I don't know who it was, a left-handed pitcher. And you would think he'd have trouble against lefties. But he told me, Birdie said, there are some hitters, when that when that pitcher releases the baseball, it looks like a beach ball to him. The eyesight that, say, you know, great hitters have, like a Tony Gwynn, a Ted mm-hmm. Williams I mentioned, Rod Carew, Tony Oliva, they could pick up the spin of that ball right off the get-go. Some hitters, I'm sure, have a tough time picking it up maybe about a third of the way, the rotation of that ball. But they had that knack of being able to see the ball come out of your hand so quickly and then make that quick adjustment. They had to be great hitters that they were. You think about it, Bert, and that gets us into the next question. Uh, a guy you you had a tough time facing or the, the respect that you had of a hitter. Anybody with a bat, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) I never disrespected any hitter, believe me, because they could hurt you at any time. Uh, The game situation a lot of times calls for certain hitters. I gave up, I mentioned earlier, 430 home runs in my career. Uh, Ron Kittle hit the most against me. He hit nine. And wherever he lives, I feel like I helped part pay some of that mortgage payment. Uh, there was a game in Cleveland. I'm with the Cleveland Indians. He's with the White Sox. and He's probably hitting well over 500 with some home runs. And he comes up the first time in Cleveland this game, boom, home run. Next time up, I drilled him right in the ribs. I, I got to make a point, right? It didn't even phase him. He went down the first. Next time up, I thought I threw a pretty good pitch outer half of the plate, home run over the right field fence. I said, okay, I give up. Because I brought back Rod Carew and Tony Oliva when they said they <laughs> saw he saw the ball good coming out of my hand. So I started dropping down on him, sidearm, and I kind of had better success. But there are certain hitters that you know that 
they see the ball well, you know, and you better do something, make an adjustment. But that comes with time. That comes with innings pitch. You know, young kids that sign today, all they're doing is they're trying to go hard, you know, but control, I'll take control over a hundred mile an hour fastball anytime, unless you're Nolan Ryan. I, I think it's interesting, too, because you give credit to hitters and you always respected them. But also, when you're on the mound, uh, there's a certain intimidation factor that you had to have. And you had that reputation, which I think is something that kind of goes unnoticed in the game of baseball this day and age. You weren't fearful of sending a message to two guys. And why I say that is it's not no one wants to hit somebody on purpose, but you do have to keep that factor on the mound that it's an intimidation factor and hey i'm going to send you a message how did you handle those situations well i gotta be honest with you you said nobody wants to hit somebody on purpose i did (laughs) Uh, there were times i hit conseco one time i wish i was 19 years old when i was 41 uh hit him in the chest and followed him to home plate as the ball hit him and he got down he fell down and i I said some nasty words to him and because uh, he had all run up earlier and he, he took about five minutes to get around the bases. <laughs> and when he got around third base, uh, I pretty much let him know what I thought of him. Uh, then the next time up, I told Bill Schroeder, my catcher with Anaheim, I said, he's, I got him. He's, he's mine. So of course, Bill goes first time, you know, Conseco comes back up. He goes fastball away. No curveball. <laughs> no fastball in yeah <laughs> so, but I made my point you know but uh you know what I, I think growing up watching Bob Gibson go about his business mm-hmm. watching Don Sutton you know I mean you got Koufax you got Drysdale Drysdale you know they, they always said you know he'd knock down his mother if he had to yeah. you know when the game's on the line you you become a different person I played with Bruce Keeson I don't know if you remember Bruce I Buster. do he got more fights than anybody because he was the nicest guy off the field. But when he crossed that white line, oh, he, he got mean. <laughs> and that's, that's something you have to have in you to, you know, to, to be aggressive out on that mound. You have to love what you do, but you got to take it to the next level. Kind of, I think some of that is clearly a generational thing in the style in which you guys played that game. I remember hearing from Bob Gibson one time that uh, somebody had said, hey, Bob, you know, you hit like 20 guys. And he goes, yeah, but I would have hit 30, but some got out of the way. You know, <laughs> well, They tell a story about Bob Gibson where this rookie was coming up and he was, you know, how right-handed hitter is digging some dirt, trying to get his footing. And Bob took a couple steps in. He says, Keep digging, boy. You're digging your grave. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a style of pitching, really, uh, that clearly worked for you. I mean, a Hall of Fame career. Um, and we touched on so many different nuances of your time in the league. You made a couple of all-star games, one in 73, uh, which you consider to be your best season, another in 1985. The 73 game was at Royal Stadium. And the 85 game was at the Metrodome. Uh, but you went back as a member of the Indians at the time, having already played for the Twins. Was either game more memorable to you uh, or more meaningful? Uh, probably in 1973, because I think I was only 22 years old. I was supposed to pitch the fourth inning. Uh, Catfish Hunter started. He was supposed to pitch two innings. And then I believe Ken Holzman came in and for the third inning, and I was set to pitch the fourth. Uh, 
Catfish Hunter got a line drive, I think, off his hand or somewhere. And I think in the second inning, so Holtzman came in relief. And all of a sudden, I thought he was going to go out for the third. All of a sudden, the phone rang with two outs. They said, you're in the game. I had hardly maybe through five, six pitches. I went out there, and I think the first two guys I walked, I remember facing, I think they were uh, – I think uh, uh, Pete Rose and Joe Morgan. I think I walked them, and then I ended up getting a loss in that ball game. Uh, Hank Aaron, I, I faced him. Uh, I think I faced Johnny Bench. So having the opportunity to face the National League greats uh, was was quite an honor. In 1985, it was cool because uh, I was really coming back home. I was I ended up getting traded later back to Minnesota that summer. But uh, pitching in front of the uh, Minnesota fans that, uh, you know, I came up with in 1970 and was at them for six years before I got traded to Texas. You get traded to Texas and you, you spend some time there. Um, and your last game in a Texas Rangers uniform is a signature moment. It's a no-hitter. Can you take us through that night and your mentality? Was it different or how special was that for you? Well, I think anytime I pitched in Anaheim, my my career record in Anaheim was pretty good. I think I was just extra pumped up to uh, pitch in front of family and friends. But uh, that night, everything went right. I was actually on a disabled list, and I was not supposed to pitch. Uh, but uh, the Rangers came into Anaheim, and uh, I told uh, the manager, Billy Hunter, I felt I'd like to start a game. And I think I started the third game of that series. Uh, had a groin injury that was really bothering me. And uh, he said, well, I, you need to throw a little batting practice to show me that you're doing it. Just so happened the, the happy days people were there, uh, Ron Howard and Donnie Most, and they were there. So I threw batting practice to them. And after I, you know, I got one of them out, I think. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, uh, Billy Hunter said, well, then you can get the Angels out. So no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you had but, to try to get you had to try to get but, but two, out, right? two nights later I pitched. I ended up pitching a no-hitter and I re-aggravated my groin in the in the eighth inning. Uh and I went out for the ninth inning through nothing but curveballs because I could shorten my stride on my curveball. And uh, lo and behold, I ended up pitching the only no-hitter I had. You know, when you uh you look at that short run in Texas, I thought it was fascinating just to think. How many guys get traded after throwing a no-hitter? I mean, it turns out to be fortuitous because from Texas you go to Pittsburgh and that's where you pick up the, the 79. Well, I think they realized I had the American League conquered because that was my <laughs> last American League start. And then he sent me to the National League. So <laughs> They loved you so much they ran you out of town, right? <laughs> the way it goes. Well, Bert, after about 10 years in uh, baseball, you had time in the American and the National League, and your reputation as a player was certainly developing, but so was your reputation as a bit of a prankster. I don't know if you were at that point more focused on your intensity on the mound or focused on the intensity you showed off the field. Well, you know what, as a starting pitcher, when I first came up, we had a four-man pitching staff, as I mentioned, you know, Jim Perry, Jim Cotlery, Tion Day, Boswell. And then I joined that group when Bozzi and Tion got hurt. But uh, we have four days off, you know, and then they pitch every fifth day. So now I got really five days off to, and Mark, you know, that no matter what club you played for, and I think you played for seven different ball clubs, you yeah. need guys in the clubhouse that try to make it fun. Mm -hmm. 
not to hurt anybody or just have fun. And if you don't have that, it's 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 a long year. So you got to have pranksters. You got to have, you know, there's a lot of things when I lit somebody's shoe on fire, they're off limits because Mark, if you're if you're starting and playing the outfield wherever third first base, you're off limits to me that night. Yeah. But if you're not playing the next day, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> but I've had a lot of fun. I've, I've lit up some very famous people. I was to say, who's your favorite? Which are most memorable? Well, uh, most famous was probably Tom Selleck. Uh, when I was with the Angels toward the end of my career, uh, he was about ready, to, I think, to shoot that movie, uh, Mr. Baseball, where he went over to Japan and played. And uh, I, I guess I already had the reputation of lighting guys' shoes on fire that uh, he told me, he said, you're not going to get me. Well, doesn't that sound like a dare? <laughs> well, the game started. He got to sit in a dugout with us. So I, I set it up with Chuck Finley and Mark Langston and uh, Kirk McCaskill that we uh, they would help me light his shoes on fire. I just wanted one. But anyway, Louis Poloni was our left fielder. He made a great catch on the left field. Great enough that they're going to show it back on the Jumbotron, and we knew it. Chuck Finley sitting to the left of uh, Tom Selleck. Kirk McCaskill's to his right, and I'm sitting next to Kirk with my big lighter, getting ready. So sure enough, you know, Kirk says, oh, watch this on a jumbotron. And they all turn their heads. And as soon as they did that, I not only lit one shoe lace on fire, I got his other shoe too. So I get up and I know they're going to be flaming in about 10 seconds. That black smoke's going to come up. And I went over to our manager, Doug Rader, and I said, I got him. And Doug looked over and just started laughing. And sure enough, about 10 seconds later, Tom Selleck's putting the laces out, you know. But uh, another one I got was uh, Jim Lefevre. I don't know, Mark, you guys know I do. Jim. He's, he, was, uh, he was almost like a general, you know, when he was a manager. Well, I was with the Angels again. Joe Torrey was doing some color work for the Twins. We're in, or with the Angels, we're in uh, Seattle. And Jim comes over in front of our dugout and does an interview with Joe Torre. So I got on my hands and knees on that turf. I got underneath him. Joe, could, Joe Torre could see me doing it. I lit these brand new shoes that Jim Lefevre had on. I lit both of them through the laces. Well, after the smoke came up and Jim Lefevre, you know how firm he was, he continued his interview and he's trying to step out you know, step out the or put out the, the the flames. Well, after the interview, we're all laughing. You know, half our team is out there laughing at him. He goes to the end of our dugout, sits there for about five seconds. Then he has to cross the field, go into their dugout, and he disappears at the old kingdom. And I had heard, I, th- I pitched the next night that there was a bounty on my head that uh, Mr. Lefevre put some money that if anybody could knock my head off that night, he'd give them like 500 bucks, whatever it was. But uh, no, they're all in fun. I think, Bert, <laughs> the, the, the funny thing about it is that you have teams and teammates that just mean the most to you. And there's so many great guys in this beautiful game. But also you have particular teams that just stick out in your mind. And I think the 1989 Angels, where you spent your last uh, part of your career in an Angels uniform. What was your favorite story from that team? Oh, boy. Marcel Latchman, you know, was uh, was our pitching coach. I love the guy. He was a great pitching coach. We had a great staff with, uh, you know, Jim Abbott, 
to watch what Jim Abbott did. Uh, of course, you know, Jim without a right arm, able to only throw left-handed in the exchange he had. Uh, you know, Chuck Finley, Kirk McCaskill, Mark Langston came in 1990, I believe, but uh, Brian Harvey was our closer. We had a great ball club. I think we won 92, 94 ball games, but that was the year that Oakland was, they won over 100 ball games. So we didn't get the postseason. But uh, being at home for the first time, too, playing in front of, uh, you know, family and friends every start uh, was pretty exciting. But uh, no, it was a fun year. I think I won 17 ball games that year. I think they had a little fun with you as well, because by oh, then, yeah. buddy, you were oh. uh, you had a reputation. <laughs> You're lucky you had some good guys in there. That Chili well, Davis uh, story <laughs> out here in California is legendary. Well, you know what, uh, Mark and, and and Mike, you may have gotten little four by five cards that uh, they the front office gives you, and you sign them and pass them out to fans and stuff. Uh, well. I wasn't pitching. I went up to the clubhouse and they had about a hundred of everybody on their chairs. So of course I put mine away. Uh, I walked around. I saw Chili Davis had a hundred of them. So I grabbed them. I put them in the urinals. I put them in the toilets. Uh, I put them in the shower. I taped. went over to the visiting clubhouse that I knew Bubba, the I said, Bubba, I'll be I'm doing something. I put it on the visiting team. I put Chili's picture in the urinals everywhere. You know, you, you go into, you go number two and you have to close your stall and the door, Chili Davis' picture was right there. So he was all over that stadium. So we all laughed, you know, had a good time. Well, about two months later, I forgot all about it. Chili did not. It's Fan Appreciation Day in Anaheim. And about the fifth inning when they, Ground crew comes and drags the infield. They bring out this black suburban out of the right field area in Anaheim Stadium. And they make an announcement that the Autry family is going to donate this suburban to one lucky winner. And I'm sitting on the bench. I wasn't pitching. I'm looking. I'm saying, boy, that's a nice looking truck. That looks a lot like mine. <laughs> and now, you know, I'm 400 feet away. I can't see the plate or anything. And they pulled up to, and we're in the third base dugout. It's coming down from right field. They stop at first base and the ground crew gets out. They got all their dragging stuff and they do the infield. They throw it all back into the truck. And as it started to take off again and come around home plate, I saw my license plate in front. And I go, oh, that's my <laughs> truck. And, you know, you guys talked about, you know, fan, you know, players, they love you. You have a great time. Well, as it came in front of our dugout, Lance Parrish was our catcher. You know, Lance, big Brian Downing, we had Brian, we had Bill Schroeder, big guys. They picked up the water cooler as my truck went by and threw the Gatorade water all over my truck. And then my teammates that I thought loved me, they had little, you know, cups of dirt that they're throwing on top of my truck. It, what can you do? I just sat there and <laughs> shook my head. Hey, buddy, turn about is fair play. But Chili got me back. That is a good payback. <laughs> Chili you wrap up your career in uh, Anaheim in 1992 as a player, and a lot of accolades that follow you in a retirement. You have your jersey retired by the Twins. You're inducted into the Twins Hall of Fame. Uh, 287 wins, 242 complete games, 60 shutouts. 
And then finally in 2011, after a long wait, Bert, you finally get the call from Cooperstown. What do you remember feeling the day you got that phone call from the hall? Well, I wish my dad was with me. I think that was number one. Uh, my wife, Gail, and I were together here in Florida, Fort Myers, Florida, so we got to celebrate. Um, I think uh, having the opportunity to, I think it was my 14th year on a ballot. It was my 14th year. And I, I think, you know, I think about it now, being my last name, Blylevin, they wanted to wait till 2011 to uh, put me in. <laughs> Blylevin? Only fitting, yeah. Yeah, Blylevin, <laughs> like Chris Berman, be home by 11. Uh, but uh, no, it's it's an honor. It's an honor to go back. I'm sad that, uh, you know, Hall of Fame was cut short this year. But, uh, you know, with no induction, but it ought to be great in 2021. So, yeah, it, it's an honor to go there. Uh, a lot of hard work uh, goes into it. A lot of teammates. I didn't do it myself, believe me. Every team I played for, all five of them, so many guys helped me get to the Hall of Fame, and you just can't thank them enough. Or during your speech, you, you, you thank everyone that really had an impact in your career. But also behind you, you have those Hall of Famers. And I think it's interesting because we've had some Hall of Famers on our podcast and they've talked about going back to the hotel and having their own time uh, to be able to be all encompassed and be together, the guys that are there. Did you have an initiation into that uh, so-called fraternity of the Hall of Famers? Well, yeah, you know, you go back and, and, of course, after the speech, you're finally you're glad it's over. But Sunday night, it's all the Hall of Famers get together. And then uh, the commissioner of baseball, Bud Selig, at the time, they give you your Hall of Fame ring. Uh, fortunate enough to have two World Series rings. But having, you know, you look around the room, there's Sandy Koufax. You know, there's Jim Bunning, uh, Gaylord Perry, who I pitched with with Texas, Ferguson Jenkins. I'm going pitchers, of course. Screw the hitters, you know. Yeah, I of course. Like them. <laughs> but but you get that opportunity to sit down and talk to them, and you know, goose gossage. And I one thing Johnny Bench told us, and my wife Gail and I, take as many pictures as you can, and try to make that day that that weekend that I went in in 2011, try to make it slow down. But it didn't, you know, with family and friends there, and they had you running all over the place. But that dinner that you're talking about, Mark. It's incredible. It's something that we look forward to, I think, all Hall of Famers year in and year out. You know, you, you jump into the broadcast booth right away in practical sense, which was interesting to me because you've had this long and successful broadcasting career, still ongoing, but some may not have seen it coming given uh, your, we'll call it disdain at times for the media. What, what got you interested in moving into the booth in the first place? Uh. Well, good question. I, I had the opportunity to do some college games in California, and I enjoyed it. And I guess uh, Dave St. Peter with the Minnesota Twins heard that uh, I was doing some college games. And the Twins were there to play the Angels and then go up to Oakland. Tommy John was doing most of the games at, at that time for the Twins. And he asked me if I would be interested in doing the three games in Anaheim and three games in Oakland. And I think what Got me as after I worked with Dick Bramer. Dick Bramer and I have been partners for 25 years doing Twins uh, TV. But uh, after the first game uh, that I did against the Angels, Dick uh, said, you know what? I really enjoyed working with it, Big Bert. And I said, well, thank you, Big Dick. 
And that kind of set it off right there. <laughs> that is so perfect. <laughs> Bert, you know what you mentioned earlier? You, you grew up listening to Vince Scully. I mean, that is the, the, the upper echelon of broadcasters. Did anyone in particular give you advice that you thought? Because it, it's not an easy thing. You've answered questions your whole career. But having to paint the picture every single night in your own words um, is pretty special and, and, it, and it, it makes you feel good. Anyone in particular uh, stick out for advice? You mentioned his name, Ben Scully. You know, Mark, one thing growing up in Southern California, listening to Ben Scully describe baseball games was incredible. And I always took, and I still do today, I took, I take a lot of his energy into a ball, calling a ball game. But I also picture in the back of my mind some guy out there, be it a man or a woman, they work eight hours a day. They come home, have dinner with the family, trying to make ends meet, sit down, maybe put their feet up, watch a ball game. They do not need to hear that a ball player is having a bad day. So that's the way Vince Scully always seemed to make it, no matter if it was a good play or a bad play. If he had to do it over again, he probably would not have done what he did. Believe me, there are a lot of pitches I didn't want to throw. I could have thrown over again if I had it. I, you can't have mulligans on the mound or even at, at bat, Mark, as you know. But you know what? Uh, I just look at it that, that there's somebody out there watching the game for the first time. So you're almost a teacher too. You're a teacher mm-hmm. of the game. So have fun with it. And you got to find ways to entertain the fans and also entertain me. You got to entertain myself, yeah. you know, have fun with it. You've entertained so many people, Bert, for so long, not only as a player, but as we're talking about here as a broadcaster and, and, and still doing that now, your golf game has to have improved. Uh, you're playing enough. You're doing work, <laughs> right? You're doing Four days work. a week, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing work uh, with uh, Parkinson's research and have for a long time. What, what's next for you or how far out do you plan? Uh, as we get older, of course, uh, we go day to day, but, uh, you know, God's been good to, uh, my wife, Gail and our, all our children together. Uh, I have four children. My wife has two. We have nine grandkids together. Two of them are over here now. Uh, you know, we take them out to the pool and have fun and that's it. Live day to day. I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. So I'm going to enjoy today and do the best I can. Uh, when I get an opportunity to broadcast ball games, I'm going to have fun with it. Uh, and, and do the best I can. Well, I got to tell you, you've made it a treat for all of us. Uh, the entire run, the frying Dutchman, <laughs> right? Or, or Burt Be Home Bly Levin. By the way, which is your favorite of the two? Uh, you know, Chris Berman, probably, you know, Burt Be Home by 11 to be, you know, that name put on by such a great man of uh, Chris Berman's uh, stature, uh, you know, Pretty nice. And he says that's one of his, I actually have a picture in the other room of Chris Berman and myself, and he did sign it to me. You know, Bert, uh, be home by 11, Chris Berman. Well, Bert, be home by 11, Frying Dutchman, uh, 60 shutouts, 287 wins. Thanks so much for the time. Love to talk baseball with you. Well, thank you guys so much. And uh, God bless you all. And God, God bless the two viewers that watch this. <laughs> without, Thanks, both, yeah, without both of them, we'd be nothing. <laughs> 
thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.